0: Welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. I am your host, Anthony Whitaker. I'm also an optimist. I believe it's the only way to be, but I also believe that it is really important to always be learning, and that means learning what worked and also learning from what maybe didn't turn out exactly the way you first planned. My guest on today's podcast is a very good friend of mine and someone who has definitely influenced my career. He is a hairdresser, a serial entrepreneur, and London-based salon owner, Andrew Jose. Andrew has always been someone who explores every opportunity that comes his way. And like all of us, some of those opportunities lead to success, and other times, they may not always work out the way you first imagined. In today's podcast, we will discuss what are the important things to look for when going into a business partnership, knowing when it's time to expand your business, the value in being a brand ambassador, and the lessons involved in developing your own hair product line, and lots more. So, without further ado, welcome to the show, Andrew Jose. Hi, good morning, Anthony. It's great to have you here, Andrew. I'm, I'm really excited about talking to you today. Um, let's start off, well, the way I start off with everybody, basically, is I want you to introduce yourself. Just give us your two-minute backstory. Who is Andrew Jose? I'm a
1: hairdresser. I'm a teacher. Uh, I'm a salon owner of 33 years. Over the course of my career, I've supported and helped some of the biggest brands in the world with their journey along the way, and um, I'm a stylist, you know? I go behind the chair, I cut hair, so I suppose in an old-fashioned hairdressing term, i describe myself as an all-rounder, but I don't color.
0: Right, okay, so, You know, that's one of the things I sat down and I thought about what we're going to talk about today. And, you know, you've done a lot of things in this industry and you've been very successful in some areas. And like everybody, you've had some business ventures that maybe haven't turned out as you originally anticipated. So on today's podcast, I wanted to explore the things that have worked and why. But I also think there's a lot of value for our listeners to ask you about the lessons that you've learned along the way when things don't work out the way you anticipated and how you bounce back and even grow from it. So, you know, we, we worked together in the uh, eighties and it was at the end of the eighties that uh, when we were both at Sassoon and you were the, the, the school, uh, one of the school principals there, and you left and went out on your own and formed a partnership. So uh, with somebody else where you opened up a, um, a salon and school in London's Kings road, And it was a business that did very well until the partnership dissolved. I forget how many years you had it. But what I want to talk about is what I want you to talk about is partnerships. What what advice, what's the most important thing that you would say to to a young hairdresser who's listening to this, who's thinking of going into partnership with someone? that's That's a great
1: place to start because... When you go into, what I discovered is, is that when you go into a partnership, you need to really establish what your core values are. And it's and it's a little bit like going into a marriage um, and perhaps just as difficult to get out of when it goes wrong. And core values about where your vision is, where your dream is, what the point of this is, why are you doing it? Uh, are really
0: important things to establish. I'm trying to sort of think through what the you know what the key sort of nuggets are there about success of a partnership and I suppose what what sort of stands out to me based on what you're saying is it's so important if you go into partnership with someone to understand each other's strengths and weaknesses before you get married so to speak and to make sure yeah. that you both got a shared vision. Would, would that be would that be a, a good sort of way to sum that <clears throat> up? It, it, you've summed it up exact, exactly
1: right and actually have some defined roles. Um, yeah. He, as a, as a character, he had never had a successful creative life, but he was a very successful businessman. And yeah. I think he, what he wanted was a mini me to, to do what he was great at and expected sure. that from me. But in fact, yeah. I wasn't that. I was the part of him that was missing. And he never recognized that he would compliment me with his business skills. He just became frustrated by my lack of them.
0: Yeah. Okay. And what, what skills do you wish you had? Is there something you could pinpoint that you wish you'd known before you'd opened a business of your own? I should have had some basic
1: understanding of profit and loss. And I opened, and even when I opened the first salon, I was still completely ignorant of yeah. that. I was just simply had complete conviction and belief that this would work out fine and it would be, mm. and it would be okay. And, uh, um, and I was able to, to reflect on that first business relationship with you but with the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of time being able to look back on it. But when I swapped and opened up my own salon, it wasn't, um, my only driver was, well, I've got to do something, so what shall I do? Well, I better open the shop then. So that, that was it, it was my, that was my drive. Um, I never for a second went back and reflected on what do I need to know to be able to make this work? yeah and it's quite and it's, and it's quite interesting and 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 a funny well a funny story is is that i remember i got it i got the shop it was very exciting i was very pleased i got a young a young team in uh good people good people on the way didn't really have a clue about what to do but there we were i was in charlotte street it's a very pretty very very pretty street and um you have to. You have, one of the one of the key things is, is that you have to have your eyes open and your ears open, and a great mentor of mine um, said to me, "Stop talking and and listen, and look and just see what's around." So, um, and I took that lesson on really to heart. And um, one of the one of the first clients to to come into the salon uh, was a was a guy called Maurice Saatchi and he owned a rather famous advertising agency up the road called Saatchi and Saatchi and I cut his hair and he he basically I th- you know who knows we made a we made a connection and he and he said to me you know you know you're a new business he was he was pleased for me that I'd opened a business on his road which is Saatchi and Saatchi he owned the biggest advertising agency in London, and it became a worldwide success through the 1980s. Um, and he he basically said, well, ring up my staff, you know, ring up the head of staff. Personal assistant. Um, or something. Personal assistant, and, and <laughs> she will, she just, she had networked the fact throughout the company that you vote and we'll let everyone know throughout the business. So mm. we became... Um, we became the, the salon of, um, advertising and became known, known for that. Um, but one of the things that, that, that wasn't really what, what, what made a success of it was that, that, that I thought to myself, because still my background was creative and all, and all the rest of it. Um, and I just thought, well, one of the things you never do when you work at, for a company like I did our soon is you never enter competitions. Competition is, something other people do and I thought to myself well I'm going to have to do something here because I'm very aware of the fact that this business is actually going nowhere so I thought well what can I do that's different for me not for the world but for me and I thought well I think I'll enter a competition because if I can do a good haircut that will change the salon." And what I'd say to all the creatives, and my lesson out of this is that for all the creatives is, is that you can change your world with a good haircut. Because I did, I entered a competition, I won the competition, I did a good haircut, I got four pages in Vogue, and then I had a successful salon. Mm. And so, yes, I had no business acumen. But what I did have was an instinct of how to connect with people and how to connect through my work to attract people. And I think that if what, wherever you are and wherever you exist, what, wherever your business is today, is just that sometimes, you know, if you're, you're in a place where you think, I don't know how to get out of this. So if you go out and you stand on the busiest street near you, And you just breathe in all those people and you just look at all of those people around you, you'll find the opportunity within them to come back and think, okay, how can I connect to those people? Because they're the people that are going to make
0: my success. Okay. So, you know, you you had... One successful salon. And then, as I alluded to at the beginning, you then opened a second and then opened a third in London. So, the question I want to ask you because a lot of people, you know, that talk to me about expansion, you know, that they've got one salon and it's working a treat and they think they've got the Midas touch. And so they go off and open a second one or a third one. And then you see them, you know, a couple of years later, whatever, and and they've gone back to just one. Um, What I want to ask you about is at what point. Do you know it's the right time to open a successful second business or third business? What was the catalyst for you that made you, you know, open up those other units? Well, uh, the catalyst for me,
1: um, which may be the same for some people, may may not be. But the catalyst for me was this, that I, my background had always been that I was, uh, uh, was an educator. I still am an educator, but I wanted to be involved in the world of fashion. And so... Uh, I th- I, and I didn't really know how to do it. I didn't know anything about um, session hairdressing. I didn't know anything about that. It wasn't my world. Um, and I just sort of thought, well, perhaps if I open a business in the middle of fashion, then by um, literally by being involved in it, I will become a part of it. So I chose to open a business in a little uh, fashion place called Hyper Hyper, and um, I opened up this little shop. I only had four chairs in it. it was very, very cool um, place. The design was just fantastic. It was um, we were on the, we were in the basement. And what Hyper Hyper was was a uh, it was an ex department store that uh, had been empty. And so the owners of it opened it up into allowing new young designers to have their first business. And so you had about a 100 stalls. So if you think of a market, uh, but indoors, it was like an indoor market where everyone had their space. You could have a very small unit or you could have a larger unit. We had one of the larger units. And you then showcased your clothes or showcased your hair and it, it was a place where anyone who was interested in fashion could come to to discover new designers, um, uh, buy their clothes, enjoy them, wear them. And then several of those designers went on to have their own proper shops. They created that. Um, 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 michika mochika anyway, there were famous, famous brands that came out of there that went on and on and on. Um, and we opened there. And so it put us, I literally physically put us in the heart of fashion. And from yeah. there, then fashion started
0: to become part of our business. I, I want to come back to that about hyper, hyper because I think there's a very interesting analogy there for current times on the other side of COVID. But I, I don't want to talk about that now. I'm going to come back to that towards the yeah. end of this. So, why did
1: I open So, your question was, why, when, did I, when did I choose it was the right time to open a second business? The business I had in Charlotte Street was at capacity and my ambition for the business was outside of Charlotte Street. And so I chose a second location for the specific task of broadening the reach of our salon to different types of clients.
0: Mm. What's the key to a successful expansion?
1: The team that you have in place that you put into the business that hold the same understanding and values that, that you have. And the people who went into that business um, – had a young young New Zealand guy um, uh, Neil who was tremendous. He was fantastic at that. Uh, Nicola Clark went into that business. A fantastic colorist, um, and they knew why they were there. They were there to assimilate us and to find opportunities within the world of fashion.
0: Right. Okay. So I just want to move on from that a little bit because then. At some point, you then opened a salon in school in the Czech Republic, in Prague, the capital of the Czech Republic. Uh, so mm. a long way, for, a long way from London, uh, non English speaking country, uh, yeah. very, very, uh, you know, sort of left of field uh, that, as to where that came from. So talk to us about that. Why did you do that? Because I know you had it for quite a while, and I know it was successful. So uh, just, mm. just talk to us about the lessons of opening up. Uh, expanding, but expanding on an international uh, level, and what the uh, lessons are you learned from that? Well, it was a very interesting time in my
1: career, and that was that, at the point, I was the global ambassador for Schwarzkopf for education, and it was a role that I held for six or seven years, and it was great fun, a great time, and really, my, my job uh, was to communicate in the best possible way to to the customers of Schwarzkopf all over the world, uh, their vision, their dream, and to give the hairdressers tangible education from the collections that were created. Uh, Along the way, I had a close working relationship with country managers. And there were several countries in particular that I bonded with very, very closely um, and help them directly. They would share with me the experiences that they had and they would ask for particular help. And I would try and formulate or I would formulate ways of communicating to the target customers that would help them with market share. And this uh, young guy who I'm still very close friends with, uh, Gerd Giesen, came along to see me in, in the salon and he turned up and it was for this little country that I'd I'd never been to, uh, that I'd heard about. They weren't in the um, European Union. And he came along to see me in Charlotte Street. And he came in and introduced himself. So I shook hands and was very happy to meet him and all the rest of it. And said to him, how can I help you? Which is the same thing you'd say to any client. And he just said, I want to have the best salon in the Czech Republic. Because I want to take on L'Oreal and I want, and we're seen as a local brand and I want to be a successful international brand. And to do that, I want to use you as the vehicle to achieve that. And that was why I opened a salon in the Czech Republic. We went into the center of Prague and we opened at, before there was the liberalization of the country. It had newly gained independence and we opened the best salon in Prague
0: yeah and it was a great salon uh, yeah. uh, and, and in a phenomenal uh location now I know that you also so you know you're a man of many talents and you're not afraid to take advantage of an opportunity and I know that you also dabbled with a franchise model uh in japan uh with salons um, so so just you know briefly talk to us about that and what your experience was uh, what you know what the lessons were that you took away from that uh
1: Again, different things come along uh, at different times. Um, One of the jobs I had for a a while, one of the contracts I had was with um, Shiseido in Japan. And that brought me to the attention of Japanese hairdressers of a different type from the ones who used to come to me for education. And one of them was a uh, you know very I, I believe a very nice man there who had a successful chain of hairdressers and he wanted to have a european he wanted to create a European brand um, to expand and have as a success he had great goals. He came to me by introduction from a man I knew very well. And I'd never had the dream of having a chain of hairdressers all over the world. That just wasn't really one of my ambitions. But I was aware of the success of a partnership that Paul Smith had had by uh, mm. local connections there. So I thought, well, let's go for this. I created for him a very strong brand identity about what I believed were the successes of trading in London and offered that to him as a way. And he was completely adamant, and in fairness to him, he was completely adamant from the word go, that the way that we trade in London wouldn't work in Japan. And I'm not in Japan, I live in London, I'm not about to go and live in Japan. I trusted him, he was a successful businessman. So therefore he opened really what was the opposite of our brand identity, very private, very exclusive, very quiet as a business, but mm. outspoken as a business, and really, it it, it 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 wasn't me, it wasn't us, and ultimately, I think it wasn't, uh, it just didn't work, you know. Mm. And I think that that if you wanted something that was a reflection of me, you should have opened something that was a reflection of our business, but he yeah. was adamant that. This was the way it should go. And it really it didn't it it just
0: fizzled. Yeah it fizzled out, well, I think, because so, it, had, yeah, so it, really, it had no passion it comes, or drive. Yeah. So it comes back to that thing we spoke about at the beginning with partnerships, making sure that you've got shared vision, you know, and trust in each yeah, other and you know what each other's strengths yeah. and weaknesses are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um and I had another, trust in it. I had trust in the guy, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's essential if you're going to go into business with anyone, isn't it? So, another one of the many hats that you've worn, and and this one was a great success for you, was as a brand ambassador. Um, and you mentioned a minute ago that you were, you know, professional brand ambassadorships. You mentioned Schwarzkopf, but you also had a brand ambassadorship with, uh, Panten or Pantene, depending on which country you're from, um, in the 1990s, which was a, was a retail brand. And that was a completely. New direction for you. Can you talk about the the sort of ups and downs of opportunities like that? Because obviously there is a potential for a great upside, you know, financially, particularly. Uh, but does it have a negative impact on your reputation in the industry if you're seen to do that?
1: Uh, it was a great. It was a really good experience, and it was one that I held for uh, about seven years. So it was a very good, successful relationship. There is uh, the upside to it. If you're creative, is just that the budgets you have are mind boggling, and I love going into the photographic studio. And I would, when I got to do a collection for Pantene, I had more money to spend on the on those shoots than I've ever enjoyed ever in all my life, mm. and it was fantastic fun. And you're really, really well paid for it. But hairdressing is only a only one part of it, because Pantene, as I call it uh, at the time, was the world's biggest hair care brand. It's by Procter & Gamble. They have a very key uh, set of values. And you have to really understand that your job is to help their dreams come true. They didn't employ me to try and tell them how to run their business. They employed Mm. me to help their dreams come true, but they knew what their dreams were. They didn't need me to create their dream, they knew it. And that is, that is a flip, it's, a, it's a, a double-edged sword or a flip of a coin, because on the one hand, if they came along to me and said, okay, Andrew, this is the direction we want to go with this. This is what we're looking for, can you, can you do this? And I'd say, yep, my job's to do it, and I would do it for them. Now, if that doesn't work, if that doesn't translate into sales, if that doesn't translate into value, it doesn't reflect badly on me because my job is to make their dream come true. And if if it doesn't work, they just say, well, that was our idea, and we've learned from that, we'll do something else next
0: time. Yeah, but to be clear, it, it, you were you weren't just doing hair for photographs. You were like a public-facing. Oh, um, that's right. Public-facing yeah, representative spoke, for the. I band.
1: spoke. I spoke on their behalf, yeah. and in that, because I had or have a, a a very good reputation within the British hairdressing industry, then it meant. That at the time, any consumer brand was, on the whole, attacked by the professional industry and derided for the quality of the product. Um, yeah. It nearly destroyed Vidal Sassoon with wash and go. And so they learned from that. That was a Procter & Gamble brand. They learned from that. And so they basically, they took me out of the market and because I spoke on their behalf, I deflected. I was a shield against professional criticism of their brand, yeah. and I and I recognised that. And it was a career, and it was a career, an important career choice for me.
0: Yeah, and and I know that that took you. How many years were you doing that role? Six or seven years, did you say? Uh, about seven years. Yeah, seven years. Yeah. So, and I know that that took you away from your salon for long periods of time. What what impact did that have on your salon business? Well,
1: in truth, the salon—I um, was only a lot of money. I mean, you have to say, I was a, and so therefore, it didn't have an impact on the business because the business was awash with money. But the um, the truth of it is, is that I had a group of people who were largely unproductive because they didn't have um, they they weren't held to account for their lack of productivity and you know they were very very creative people and they supported me in my role and to be honest i needed them in my role to be able to do that job because Mm. um, as much as i was the front man for that contract i needed a support team to enable me to to do it and um they supported that contract but as a salon business it actually, it, it, it didn't destroy it, but it stopped it being what it ought to be as a vibrant uh, business because it,
0: it, was, it became too comfortable. It was much yeah. too comfortable. Okay. So what your, your brand ambassadorship was sort of subsidizing the salon? Yeah, it ended subsidizing up subsidizing yeah. it. But it, yeah. but it was also required
1: to enable me to be that brand ambassador because it yeah, was the exactly, team of people yeah. that I had meant yeah. that we could produce for a well brand that quality of work that was needed.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let, let's segue from the, that retail brand ambassadorship into the professional, professional brand ambassadorship, yeah. of which you've had more than one over a 40-year career. Um, what mm-hmm. advice would you give to a salon owner or young hairdresser who wants that sort of role with a manufacturer?
1: um again i i'd say that uh, first of all you have to make yourself you have to create a value for yourself and to create a value for yourself you need to have uh created a profile for the quality of your uh hairdressing work and to be able to communicate uh successfully and succinctly um on the behalf of other people so it so Enter competitions, win competitions or do PR, do work that gets identified, do stuff that gets you noticed. Do all of those,
0: do all of those things and you, you start to create a value for yourself. And, and I suppose that that same bit of advice applies about um, if you're a salon owner, yes you might be out there treading the boards doing you know shows and, and educating other people, but don't take your eye off the ball. With your own business, it's a very difficult. It's a very it's a difficult
1: it's a difficult road to tread, Um, uh, and I'd say that it gets easier over time. Uh, Yeah, because you've certainly done it very successfully over the last. I, I have. I'd I'd say they're helping other people. Um, You know, I always look at it, Anthony, and that's. I just think that. There are, there are so many different things that you can be involved in in hairdressing, you know, be it session work, educations, serving clients, supporting manufacturers, uh, creating imagery, all of those things are there. And I think that in a, in a way that if you can get as many of those things involved in your business, it will help you it it creates a vitality. You don't have to be a big business for this, but it creates a vitality in your business that makes it interesting to be involved in. And it's a place that people want to work in. And you're creating careers for people because you're touching on all the different aspects of hairdressing. So, but at any time... You have to remember what's the core thing that keeps all this moving along. And if you have a salon, it generally will be that. And so you have to nurture it and take care of it, but also serve the other aspects around it. Um, yeah. And
0: I think that makes for us. It's a fun business for a small businessman. Yeah. Well, you, you've never been uh, shy, about taking advantage of opportunities when they're put in front of you and uh, and you know it's great that you're able to talk about those things now uh, and you know with the honesty of you know what's What's worked well? What did you learn from it? Um, and you know, another one of your your projects, which was fantastic, uh, was your J Life products that you launched. Because I know, yeah. I'm not sure what year it was. It was sort of in the early 2000s. You launched your own retail brand called J Life, and again, that was a, a another partnership. And I know that that brand no longer exists. So, can you? Talk to us about that journey of developing your own product line. And, um, you know, I I know it was both. It was both professional and retail line. So, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there. We could talk about that alone for an hour. But uh, let's just just dig into that a little bit and tell us about that um, uh, venture.
1: Well, I've been nominated six times as British hairdresser of the year, and i just written a best-selling book called love your hair which uh, sold a hundred thousand copies and was a gr- was a great success it was um it was for the consumer and so my my and it was on the back of having been the brand ambassador for, for um, panteen for, for all these years and so it, the obvious next step was to to move ahead and into uh, products, because I had so many peers uh, around me, you know, Trevor Sorby, Nikki Clark, uh, John Frieda, who had made great successes of it. Uh, and I was introduced to uh, a guy who had the drive uh, to do this, and really did have the drive of uh, bringing people together to make it happen. Um, and uh, hugely ambitious. And so we... In the space within two years, we launched two brands. One was, uh, a consumer brand called Amazon Jost, and the other was a professional brand called J-Line. And because of many of the times, the way that I looked at both of these things was that I wanted the, uh, pro- I wanted the consumer brand to look like a professional brand so that it was very simple, very beautifully designed, very simply designed, very functional in the way that it was. I wanted it to stand aside from the other commercial looking brands. And then with J-Life, I wanted to give the hairdresser, because I'm very aware as a salon owner how difficult it is often to to retail products with all the training in the world. Um, and I thought, well, if I can produce a product that is simply beautiful to look at, very colorful, um, great fragrance, um, and really be functional, then I'd help... A, The success that we would have with it would be by making it as easy as possible to retail. So that was the, my belief within the two of them. Um, how do you formulate it? There are, there are manufacturers all over the world who basically have off the shelf ability to be able to recreate almost anything. So I very simply went around, I cherry picked. The best of things in the world have products from Japan, products from Germany, products from the UK, products from consumer, products from professional. And I literally put my product ranges together and said, this is what we have, recreate them. It's, it is hit and miss and it does take time. You can't do it in under two years, but eventually you end up with that product range. And we launched within a very short period of time, we launched. Uh, both brands and for those of you who are involved in this sort of world, we, I think simultaneously we, we launched 38 SKUs, which is a massive amount of products to launch yep. at any particular time into two distinct markets. We were very fortunate that we got both brands got picked up by national retailers straight away and Bang, we were on shelf. We were on, on shelf on, with a big wholesaling brand in the UK. And we got picked up in um, we got picked up in America um, as well. Uh, for I think just for the professional brand. And, and the consumer brand was out. It was on shelf, uh, with in boots, all the contracts were signed. Bang, we were in business. So the question is, what happened, and why is there why did neither exist at this time? The smallest of things can the smallest of things can destroy a brand overnight. Some are and some of them are um, avoidable. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the people who we recruited to. Um, one of the people who we recruited to the product part of the business was a very, very experienced person who sourced materials. And so she sourced components for bottles. And her background had been with businesses that bought millions of bottles. And so therefore, margins when you've got millions. If you can save a cent on the cost of a single component when you're doing millions of bottles, it's a lot of money. And so that goes straight on the bottom line. It's fantastic. When you're a tiny startup company, then a cent is meaningless because yeah. it's it's almost immeasurable. You're better off spending the money. And we had this rather beautiful one of the products that was very keen on. I had a fantastic scalp product that was particularly good for scalp conditions, and uh, the design of the bottle were that everything sat on the cap. And what? But this product was bright green, and we'd achieved. So if I set the if I set the scene, we'd achieved top shelf in Boots. We opened up immediately. Boots is a is a pharmacy um, pharmacy chain. It's the biggest yeah. one in the UK, um, and um, we've got Top Shelf, so we've got fantastic position. They're behind us. They gave us I can't remember it was either two or three hundred stores as opening. So to be honest, with our opening order, we were into profit. So it was bang. The press that we got was phenomenal. They opened all of these things. Two things happened, one was avoidable, one wasn't. Boots had a logistics problem, and so they delayed refitting their shelves for three months. All
0: of our press
1: was done, and it arrived, and we got fantastic press coverage for the brand. We got all the issues in the September issue, uh, we were there saying, this is a wonderful product, We've got fantastic reviews, got everything, everything, everything. There was no product on shelf because Boots had changed their redesign of their shelving. They slipped by eight weeks. So all mm-hmm. of the press came out, you couldn't buy the product. That was the first thing, that's out of our control. The mm-hmm. second thing that was in our control was that the lady concerned with the best, re, you know, in the best way possible, had sourced a cap for this particular bottle that wasn't for the same manufacturer as the body of the shampoo. And she did it because it saved a scent, which was meaningless. And the two didn't fit together perfectly. And what happened was that it leaked bright green shampoo all over the top shelf of 250 boots across the country. <laughs> you'd have to laugh or you'd cry. Okay. So yeah. boots, you have to, well, it was both. And, and, and here we'll, boots is designed, the people who work in boots, they fill shelves. People buy product, they fill shelves. The people who work there, they don't clean. So therefore, when there's bright green shampoo all over the shelf, they just look at that and they move on to the next one and they fill that shelf instead. Mm. So I was doing, I was literally on the road. I was traveling all around the country, turning up in boots, doing personal appearances. And the first thing I'd have to do is to clean. And so I'm in there cleaning the shelves, cleaning shampoo, cleaning the bottles before being this celebrity hairdresser and all the rest of it. And Ultimately, it killed the brand mm. Mm. Okay.
0: because no one was there to clear it. So, but it, I know you also had, the brand. had so that killed. I know you also had distributor challenges in the US where there was a change in yeah. the market. That, well, I'm, I'm, and so therefore,
1: so therefore, that was my profession. That was my consumer brand, which was right. a UK brand, and that was two lessons from that that killed uh, it. j Life was doing pretty well. And um, we had a, had a great guy uh, there, had a lot of experience uh, in um, with the TG organization helping them in America. And he became free and uh, he helped us there. And we got, we were doing quite well. We got up to just a little below $3 million in, in turnover there. I was starting to spend quite a lot of time in America. Um, he had moved to a Place called Salt Lake City in the middle of America to make that his home because it was a very good place for him to be able to travel around America and he felt that it was important that we have a um, a school stroke academy that was centrally located that would give a heart to the brand Um, and he for him it was obvious that it should be in his hometown of Salt Salt Lake City um, which I didn't really realize. I told Anthony Muscola this story and he, he he literally cried with laughter that I opened a salon and a school in Salt Lake City because it is such a Mormon town and it's too far removed from from fashion to to really give an identity to anything. But hey-ho, there you go. Um, anyway, it was there, but but it wasn't that didn't hinder us. What what happened was is that there was a marketplace change, and that, that was that. Uh, L'Oreal made a decision that they wanted to control distribution of products in America and they didn't have a direct sale business. So what they did was that they bought up a lot of the chains of wholesalers and our biggest chain that sold us through got bought by them. And then with a stroke of a pen, any brand that had... um, a turnover of less than $3 billion was deleted from the inventory. And so overnight, our brand was deleted from the American marketplace. Mm. And it also happened to a great friend of mine had a brand there um, called Unite. Now he had been established long enough that he thought, okay, I'm gonna take this as an opportunity and I'm gonna go sell direct. Again, I'm based in London. I'm not based in America. That wasn't a possibility for us. And so overnight, that brand just disappeared. Yeah. And I'm very sad. To this day, I'm sad of that. It's a a cracking brand, but stuff happens,
0: you know. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a great example of, you know, there's a lot of hairdressers out there that sort of see getting a bottle of shampoo out there with their name on as being the story to unlimited wealth. And uh, yeah, there are some examples of people who have done extraordinarily well and make a lot of money out of their own brand. But we very quickly uh, seem to forget that there's a lot of people that fall by the wayside that start up a brand with all the ambition and enthusiasm. And oftentimes, and you just gave Great examples for for reasons that you really have very little, if any, control over. Um, It's it's bad luck, it's bad timing, and something like that can completely uh, uh, wipe you out. Um, So Let's let's uh, segue into talking about something that you've done, which has been um, and continues to be something that's successful for you, and that is that it, at some point I forget when you took over the Jingles School in London, and I know that you still have that, but not as a physical school. Um, what, what made you what made you do that, and and where is it now? How's that working for you these days? I, about twenty years ago, uh, I've I've, I've and it's always, about 20
1: years ago, I wanted to um, diverse, divest a little bit and take on something that didn't rely on my my name. And the an opportunity came along, Jingles, uh, which was a 1970s education brand in school, came up for sale. There were two different parts to it. It had a small product range, and it had this uh, identity in hairdressing school. So anyway, so I, I took it over, I bought it, I sold, uh, on the day I bought it, I'd arranged for the sale of the product company. So the product company got sold off to a manufacturer and I was left with the Jingles brand and Jingles uh, school. Hairdressing schools as physical places to attend um, were, uh, were going through a change at that time. But one of the key things that were part of the Jingles brand was that it, was, uh, a, a, it had an image and education part that had um, external contracts to produce so that other people would deliver education, and image under the jingle brand name, direct to hairdressers. It was almost like a forerunner of online education, but delivered physically. And that remains to this day. And so under the Jingles brand, we have about 400 salons who um, enjoy the Jingles education. They receive three collections a year, two two, uh, spring, summer, autumn, winter, and a special collection in the summer. Um, These are delivered to them uh, locally by teams of trained hairdressers under the Jingles brand. Uh, they receive their seminar. Actually, now they, of course, they receive them online, and they get to display images in their salon. And their staff and the owners are trained in the new collections each season. Um, so it creates education, motivation, and imagery uh, for their businesses. And and it's
0: actually I rather enjoy it, and it's something that's great fun. Good. Good, yeah. no, I've seen you know some of the content of of what you put into those collections, and uh, it's fantastic. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is that all over the world there's been a shift in um, the the business model of hairdressing, where it used to be very much the employee employer business model. It is now heading more and more into the independent contractor self-employed option. And I know in the UK, for example, that I read that now 54% of hairdressers are now self-employed, and in the US, it's even higher than that. It's significantly higher than that. So, one of the things that you touched on before, and this is sort of Also linked to COVID as well, and and just the way consumer shopping habits is changing, is that whether we're talking, you know, the US, the UK, you know, everywhere in the world, is that people's shopping habits are changing. We're buying more and more online. And everywhere you're starting to see the demise of the department store. And the department stores often occupy prime real estate in Uh, in cities. And I think what we're going to see, amongst other things, we're going to see, you know, some of them being turned into residential, which isn't always a bad thing because it brings people back into, you know, the heart of the city. But you were talking earlier on about Hyper Hyper, which was an old department store in London. And this is 20 odd years ago. And you were talking about how you opened a salon in there and that it was, The way you described it, it was very much like the salon suite business model. In other words, it was a big space divided up into lots of smaller cubicles, which allowed people uh, mainly in the fashion uh, context of clothing, it allowed people to, uh, to get started, uh, in business. And you and I were having this conversation about how in London and the UK at the moment, and I know in the US that there are department stores closing, you know, with great frequency and that it's sort of like a, a perfect storm between this, uh, self-employed hairdressing, you know, uh, business model of salon suites or salon studios uh, and all these, you know, spaces that are coming available. Uh, and we were discussing what the future might look like as regards to that. W- what are some of your thoughts about that? Because you had some, some very interesting observations. Opportunity is what comes uh, whenever you go through a big,
1: Whenever you go through a big change, and and without a doubt, you know being shut for half the year is is the biggest change that I think I've ever been through. Um, Mm -hmm. But lots of things happen, and and the British property market, or the world property market, often behaves in, in, in mysterious ways, and that's that you do have these shopping places to shop that are having to be repurposed all over the world, and that creates great opportunity. And if I, if I think you know, beyond hairdressing, and that's that if you look at the places that remain hugely busy, and that's outdoor markets that are selling individual um, products that are, be it food, be it clothing, be it things to possess, craftsmanship things, things that are made by real people where you can connect to the person who's made it, these places are all, thriving. They're as busy as you like. And Hyper Hyper, for people who are interested in fashion, what it created was just that. It it gave young people and young designers and a young hairdresser the opportunity to do their best creative work in an environment that was attractive for people to come and visit. And so, Therefore, it was the, the experience of going to Hyper Hyper was exciting. And opposite it, you had something called Kenston Market, which was a same company actually, but was, was a different type of designer. They were selling, lots of them would be selling retro American clothes and, and stuff like that. And, and, but both of them were destinations. And so the repurposing of these otherwise empty buildings created something that was it became a destination because the experience you received when you got there was exciting and you were excited to go there and i can easily see that happening now i live in a bubble I, and i'm very aware of that i live in the bubble of london which whatever happens in the world london kind of has a momentum of its own but this repurposing i think can happen in towns and Cities throughout the world um, by energizing young people. But the, the key thing that made um, Hyper Hyper successful was that it had a central vision of promoting the individuals within that. Whilst the relationship very simply was about I'm renting a space from you and I'm paying the rent and then I have to sell my clothes, what they had is they had a central PR function which promoted the whole business. And then the individuals within it, and there was a way of progressing, and that's that if a young designer who was in the basement was doing really well, they their unit would start to move around the store until eventually it was in the prime location in the store, and it had more space because they helped that person grow within the context of this uh, collective and it was it was it was really. Terrific. And it, and it came out of recession, actually, because it came out of a need by the landowner or the property owner to get some income to support that building, but of individuals of which there's a million of them out there ready at the start of their journey to start a new business.
0: Yeah, I think so that was, that it was some, great. I think there's some very definite parallels there with. Um, the time that we're in now as we come out of COVID. And it's sort of the perfect storm. I mean, you know, Amazon was taking over the world anyway, and COVID has made it even more so. And so, you know, when you combine that with what else we were talking about with this employee-employer model changing, it it will create opportunities. And it will be interesting to see how the industry respond to that. Sorry, Andrew, what were you going to say? And that's the... It's about
1: experience, and that's the one thing that hairdressers got is is that you can't get a better experience than coming to get your hair done. I mean, everything, all all businesses, like if a clothes shop now, you know, or, or a retailer um, of anything wants to survive on the high street, they have to create an experience to make the person to think, I value that experience more than shopping online. We don't need to do that in hairdressing because in hairdressing, everything we do is about experience. And if you make it a great experience and you make that a pleasure for someone, then you're going to have no problem operating at all. But one of the interesting things, which is uh, true in this country, but uh, isn't true necessarily all around the world, is, is, that the businesses that directly employ hairdressers have actually had the most amount of support from government to enable them to have a business when they come out of this COVID pandemic, because yeah. they supported your employees by furloughing them. And that means that you can pay it to the most, to, for most people, about two thirds of their salaries every mm-hmm. month. And that means that you you still have a team. Now, if you've got a salon that solely relies on self-employed people, none of that support is there for them. And I know that many of them are suffering terribly now, or worse, they're having to do people's hair at a time when you shouldn't be meeting other people because they simply have no other form of income. And so I know that everyone who's an employed hairdresser is probably feeling very thankful this year, that, that was the path they've chosen to stay
0: in. Yeah, I, I know that that varies from country to country, but as a generalization, definitely you're right. Um, just a couple of quick ones before we wrap up. How do you stay relevant? How do you, how do you keep reinventing yourself? What's the key to that?
1: First of all, you have to have the desire to do it. And that's that you have to wake up. Every morning is a new day. Every day is a new day. Um, If I feel that I'm struggling with uh, how I feel or if I don't have any ideas, you know, I'll just go to work a different way. I'll walk to work. I'll go a different route. And along the way, by the time I arrive at the front door, I've got a whole batch of new ideas, and I've got a new thoughts, and I've got a new way of thinking about it. I literally just change the way I
0: try. Yeah. And, and when things you know, don't work out for you, because there's a great lesson in, in this, because a lot of people, if something doesn't work out for them, they just fall in a heap, and that's them done, you know, uh, in whatever context that means. They leave the industry, whatever it is. How do you overcome adversity? When things don't work out the way that you envisage that they will. I mean, you've had lots of great successes, but you know, you've also had some things that you've spoken about on this podcast that haven't worked out the way you wanted. Some of those, and I'm not going to call them failures because they're not failures, but some of those things would have have um, made other people give up. Whereas you just have this, you know, this Michelin man bounce back ability. Um, how do you overcome adversity when things don't work out? Well, I think part of it has to be, you know, your, your core
1: value and your core beliefs that that's, that, you know, stuff happens. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't feel disappointed, upset or sad because all of those mm-hmm. things are true. And you feel a, and sometimes you feel a great sense of loss. But the truth is, is that, uh, it's just, you know, they're just things. And, and once you, you can't affect the past, but you can affect the future. And so, uh, and, and that's really very much how I, I see things. You know, if I do, uh, and sometimes I share it with you, you know, I've done something I'm really pleased with creatively and I get, and I'm so happy and I'm full of great joy when I've done it, but I'm very aware of the fact that once I've gone home and I've closed the door and I've walked in the back door, it's over, it's finished. Mm. And I have, tomorrow I've got to do something else, you know, yeah. because it's gone. That, that's the past.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, we need to uh, start wrapping up here, Andrew. Uh, where can people connect with you on Instagram or other social media channels? Um, so if
1: you go to Andrew J.W. on Instagram, um, Andrew Jose on Facebook, uh, you'll come onto our professional pages. If you want to ask me a question directly, it's Andrew at AndrewJose.com. And, um, very happy to receive, uh, messages from you, from old friends that I reconnect with. And, and, um, come on, let's do something.
0: Great. Well, I'll I'll put those links uh, on our website, growmysalonbusiness.com, in the show notes for today's podcast. So, if you're listening to this podcast with Andrew Jost and have enjoyed it, then do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone and share it to your Instagram stories. And more importantly, uh, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're uh, listening on Apple Podcasts, just scroll to the bottom of the page and click Ratings and Reviews. It only takes a minute. So. To wrap up, Andrew, thank you for being on this edition of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. Have you got any final words for our listeners? Uh, final, words, um, final words are,
1: I think we're in a wonderful, vibrant industry that has an exciting tomorrow and a difficult today.
0: Fantastic. Great, great uh, words to wrap up on. So, Andrew, thank you very much for being our guest today on today's podcast. Thank you, Anthony.